Good morning. Welcome. It is a good day to gather for worship. We uh, have a number of announcements um, I'd encourage you to, to check out and uh, put on your calendar for later in the month. Um, but one just to take note of right uh, this morning, and that's that uh, today is the last day to make updates in the new church directory before it's printed. So uh, it's on the table out in the narthex. Make sure you give that a look later on. Just make sure all your contact information is correct. Beloved, as we come into God's presence, there are so many things that can distract us, so many things that can uh, capture our thoughts. and We need God to focus us and to enable us to give Him the worship that He deserves. So let's begin our time together by seeking Him and asking for Him to bless us and to keep us oriented toward Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we need, we need your help that we might gain the rest and the insight and the empowerment that we need in order to bring you the glory that you deserve. Bless us during this time this morning and throughout this day that we might bring you honor and that we might be refreshed for the work that you have ordained for us in the week ahead. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us this morning to worship with these words from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from Psalm 95, Selection A. 95, Selection A.
The Lord speaks to us in the words of His law, both to remind us that we are to be set apart unto Him, that our lives are to reflect our faith in Him, but also to remind us that we do not stand before Him on the basis of what we've done. Because this law reminds us that we fail, we fall short, and we need His salvation. God says to us, as He said to Israel long ago, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We, um, <clears throat> we hear those laws and it can be easy to excuse ourselves. Well, I'm not doing that. I haven't done that. That's somebody else. But when we recognize that each of those negative commands also has a positive implied, do not steal, but do share with those who are in need. Do not commit adultery, but do cultivate chastity in your singleness or cultivate your marriage carefully if you're married. And that it involves not only what we do, but also what we think and what we say and what we desire. Well, suddenly, it turns out we're not as guiltless as we might have initially thought. In fact, we stand deeply guilty before God and desperately in need of His help and His salvation. So we need to confess our need for Him and also our reliance upon Him for the salvation and the righteousness and, and the strength that we need. So we do that this morning with Psalm 40, Selection B, Psalm 40B. And we're going to sing stanza 1 and then 5, 6, and 8. 1, 
5, 6, and 8. But I am poor and weak. The Lord takes thought of me. You are my help, my Savior. God, do not delay. And he doesn't delay. All who call on him, he hears and answers. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know? 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, for neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, what grace there is in that word, but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's the one who rescues us. He's the one who transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His Son whom He loves, and He pays the entire price. So He tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought through the blood of Christ, transformed By the work of the Holy Spirit, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's how we show our thanks. Beloved, we can do that only by the power of the Lord working within us. And so we need to seek His help to that end. As we do so, a few prayer updates. Um, Marge Vanderveen, we sent out a Uh, prayer concern for her on uh, Friday night, Saturday morning. You might have received it. She she fell about a week ago, and her condition has been deteriorating since then. She's been in the ER, I think, three, might be four times now, um, for a variety of symptoms. Um, Her daughter, Karen, reported last night that she seems to be stabilized, um, but it does seem that her condition has significantly deteriorated. You might know that uh, Marge also has pretty severe dementia, um, so it's hard for her to really grasp what's going on in all of this. So please pray for Marge, uh, as well as for her children as they make decisions together concerning her care. Um, Joel Mulder is scheduled to undergo uh, chemotherapy tomorrow. Um, the last round was, was pretty rough, uh, but his... Blood counts are are looking significantly improved, so we're uh, cautiously optimistic that that will uh, will go well. But please pray for Joel and for Maggie in that. Um, Dan Van Ens was able to receive chemotherapy last week, and it seemed to go well. So praise the Lord for that, and uh, pray for that process. Um, Bob has completed his chemotherapy and is... Uh, getting ready for radiation to begin. So uh, pray for those. And of course, we have others who are dealing with cancer treatments, Bruce and Jamie and uh, Norm. So pray for all of them. Um, Also, Jim Walthorn, we mentioned, um, has been diagnosed with cancer, is preparing for treatment. And uh, he's actually scheduled to start chemotherapy today. So please pray for Jim and Di. Um, We prayed... Last week for the Taylor family, friends of the Rubings, uh, they're all out of the hospital except for Jacob, their son, which is a huge blessing and answer to many prayers. Uh, Pray for Jacob's continued recovery um, and his transition to a therapy center. Um, Let's see, there's a couple others. Oh, Peter Chapkus, 
Um, as you know, he's in the army. He is preparing for deployment to Europe um, starting on Saturday. So pray for that process and for his, uh, his safety and, and well-being. And then uh, I mentioned last week that Kel and Beth are in uh, Florida this week, uh, this week, this month, for a hurricane recovery effort with Reform Mission Services. Let's pray. Father, you are so merciful. Your grace exceeds anything we could ask or imagine. When we hear your law and we honestly evaluate our lives, it makes us honestly wonder why you would love the likes of us. Not only have we committed a multitude of sins, but we continually return to those sins foolishly and rebelliously. But we long for something better. You have promised us that in Christ we're freed from enslavement to sin. That we have the ability in Christ to turn away from them and to turn wholeheartedly unto you. And we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one of us to cause us to trust in your son Jesus for forgiveness and to embrace the power of your spirit that day by day we might turn away from our sin and turn unto you. That moment by moment we might embrace the holiness to which we've been called and delight in your ways. Father, we thank you for this church family, for the encouragement that we gain from one another, for the strength you impart to us in the preaching of the word, in the, uh, the mutual ministry that we do to each other, in the ability to encourage and pray for each other. Father, we pray that you would build up each one so that those who are weak might find strength from those who have been strengthened and that those who have been strengthened might minister to those who are yet in need. We pray, Father, for our office bearers, As they prepare to meet in council tomorrow, we ask that you would bless and strengthen them, that you would give them wisdom and grace. We ask, Father, for um, each one of them, that you would grant uh, encouragement and success in using their gifts uh, for the, the well-being of your church. And Father, we bring before you the needs of so many. We are weak. We live in a world, we inhabit bodies that are are broken in sin and in disorder. We pray, Father, that you would provide the healing and the strength and the help that we need. We pray for Marge as she has been dealing with a number of different health problems since her fall. We ask that you would comfort her, that you would provide the healing that you ordain, and that you would grant to her, and especially to her children, wisdom in moving forward, and confidence in you and your good fatherly care. 
We pray for those who are dealing with cancer, Lord, that you would provide the healing that only you can give, that you would make the treatments to be effective, and most of all, that in these times of weakness, you would demonstrate your strengthening power, not just for body, but for soul. We pray, Father, for Joel as he undergoes chemotherapy tomorrow. We ask that you would allow that to be effective and that you would grant courage and strength and peace to Joel and Maggie. We pray for um, Jim as he is uh, expecting to undergo chemotherapy today. We ask that you would, would bless him that you would encourage him and die, and die and, and that you would provide for them along this path. We pray for uh, Dan, uh, for the, the chemotherapy that he began last week. We ask that you would allow that to be effective and that you would continue to strengthen him and Kathy. Likewise for Bob, as he uh, prepares for radiation treatment, we ask that you would watch over him and Margaret and and uh, provide the healing and the strength that they are craving. We pray for Jamie as she recovers from radiation treatment and, and awaits to see what the effect of that will be. We ask that you would uh, bless her and David and uh, give them your strength. Lord, we pray for Norm as he is uh, undergoing uh, medical care for his uh, cancer. And um, Lord, we ask that you would would bless Norm and Carol. We pray for others in our midst who are dealing with a variety of ailments. We think of Bryce, how he has been recovering from his burns and, and uh, having to deal with physical therapy. We ask that you would strengthen and encourage him in that. We pray for others who are uh, dealing with illnesses of the season and exhaustion of the season. We pray, Father, that you would bless each one, that you would watch over those who are grieving, those who are wrestling in their faith, those who are struggling against temptation. Lord, we ask that you would provide for each one as only you are able. We thank you for the healing that you provided for the the Taylor family. We ask that you would continue to strengthen and, and heal them and and comfort them in their grief at the loss of a, a family friend. We pray for Jacob as he transitions to a uh, recovery center, a, a place where he can get the ongoing treatment and therapy that he needs. And Lord, we lay before you the other cares and concerns that rest upon our hearts, asking that you would provide the healing and the strength that is needed. We pray for Peter as he prepares for deployment. Lord, we pray that you would allow that deployment to go well and smoothly, that you would keep him and his teammates safe, and that you would allow this time to be a a time of drawing him close to you, demonstrating to him your power and your grace and your goodness. Grant that he and Uh, And his fellow soldiers might recognize in their work that they are agents of yours, bearing the sword on your behalf to promote that which is good and upright and to restrain those who would do evil. 
We pray for Kel and Beth and others who are working with Reform Mission Services, that their work in uh, Florida, helping folks to recover from the hurricane, might go well and might be a strong witness to the fatherly care that you exercise toward those who call out to you. Father, we thank you for this day of rest. We thank you for the opportunity to set aside the daily grind, to set aside the cares and concerns, and to simply rest in your presence, getting a foretaste of that eternal rest that is ours in Christ, being reminded of your faithfulness to the saints, And of the time that is coming soon when you will make all things new, drying once and for all every tear. Father, we pray that you would equip us through these times of worship this morning and this evening. That we might better testify to who you are and what you've done. That our faith might be deepened. That our joy might be strengthened. That a song might arise from our hearts and flow forth from our lips, confessing how good and how faithful you are. Now, Father, as we prepare to look to your word, grant that it might be proclaimed with all faithfulness and that our hearts might hear it with joy. Lord, we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look to God's word, Let's stand and sing together Psalm 75. We give you thanks, O God. We'll sing all the stanzas of Psalm 75.
That psalm contains the extremes, doesn't it? We praise God and we anticipate the utter destruction of the wicked. And if those seem jarring, well, they shouldn't. Because our God is merciful and gracious, but He's also just. And that's something that our text for this morning reminds us of. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4. That's where we're going to be focused. Last week we saw um, two competing authorities. On the one hand, the Word of God which is trustworthy and tested and true and leads us in the way of life and righteousness. But on the other hand, those false authorities that fill the world and that clamor for our attention and that demand that we go in the way of the flesh, that we follow after and fear men and that lead unto death. And this text follows up on that and reminds us that we'll answer for which authorities we follow. We'll answer for where we commit our hearts. And for those who follow after the Lord, for those who trust in Christ according to His Word, that's a very good thing. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter so that we can see the context. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, whom he brought, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And we'll stop there. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord, in this fallen world, because of the fallenness of the world, life at times can seem quite tiring and dark. We learn to love the Lord, to trust in Him, and yet we find ourselves at times slipping. Struggling 
to stay on that straight and narrow path, focusing our attention on momentary struggles rather than on the Lord, fitting in inadvertently with the unbelievers who surround us. And meanwhile, those unbelievers often seem to be thriving. I mean, we can't see their hearts, but we can see the big houses and the new cars, the quick promotions and the growing influence. We see those worldlings surrounded by friends, growing fat and happy. But the saints feel the scorn and the hatred of such folks. They mock the way we think and speak as being backward and foolish. They reject our friendship and set stumbling blocks before us. They seek to silence the testimony of God's people. And we wonder, have I chosen wisely? Is it worth it? To stand against the tide of seemingly everyone? And if I continue to choose that way, am I steadfast enough to stand firm? To reject their temptations? To reject their worldview? To not be influenced by and and to follow after that flood of unrighteousness? The Apostle Peter knew that the people of God living in this world would ask those kinds of questions. He recognized that they would need assurance, both that God would preserve them until the end, and that God would hold accountable those who oppress them and make their life hard. And that assurance is a big part of the reason that we have the text before us this morning. Here we find, on the basis of the history of God's people, a reminder of God's perfect discernment in exercising judgment among men. Kids, do you know what discernment means? Discernment means being able to look at situations or even at people and understanding them well. We sometimes fail in discernment. Because we don't see the whole situation or because we can't see the truth of a person. We see what's on the surface, but we don't see the heart. And so sometimes we treat people badly who are just going through a hard time or we treat people well, even though secretly they hate us. But God has perfect discernment because he understands the heart of each person and he understands each distinct situation in the light of the whole of history. And therefore, he is able to judge properly. He's able to superintend perfectly every situation, every person, every life. And that should be a great comfort to us because that means that God never gets it wrong when it comes to how he treats people. And so our theme this morning is that God manifests his perfect discernment in exercising his judgment. God exercises perfect discernment in exercising his judgment. And we see that, first of all, in how he reserves the wicked for his just judgment. But we don't see that in just one distinct place in this text. See, our two points to this theme, our two sides to this coin, are intermixed throughout the text. Just a word on that. What we find in the first uh, part of this text, verses 4 through 8, 
are conditions, four conditions, four if statements, if this and if that and if the other thing. And they all rest on the history of Israel. They're things that can be easily confirmed. Is this true? Did this happen? If this and this and this and this, then, verse 9, we can be assured of that. That's kind of the structure, right? And verses 10 and 11 kind of support all of that. So we're going to work our way through that, but we're going to work through it twice because he makes two distinct points in those conditions and that conclusion. And those two distinct points, we need them both. We need to know how God's going to treat the wicked, those who remain in rebellion against him, and we need to know how he's going to treat us as we follow after him, as we rest in Christ. Looking at the way he treats the wicked, the the ones who remain in their rebellion, Peter first speaks of angels. Verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... He's referring to Satan and his angelic allies when they fell. Satan began, was created as an angel. But according to Revelation 12 and Jude 6, Satan rebelled. He refused to be a servant of God. Instead, he wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to to have the honor and the glory that was due to God alone. And so God cast him out of heaven. And with him, a third of the angels who had followed after Satan. When that happened, though, God didn't just shrug and say, well, that's a shame. I hope he doesn't keep rebelling. No, no. God arrested those fallen angels. He detained them, as it were, and restrained them. He didn't didn't annihilate them. He didn't cause them to have no ability to act whatsoever, but, but like a, a mean dog that is prone to attack, they were put on a chain. They can act, they can behave only insofar as and only in the way that God ordains. We see that, for instance, in the opening chapters of Job. Satan wants to attack Job, wants to demonstrate that Job is mercenary, that he's only acting faithful toward God because of the way that God has blessed him. And so God says, okay, you can attack Job, but only this far, only in these ways. And then when Satan comes back and says, well, you restrained me too far, God allows him a little bit more leash, but not not complete freedom. And that's the way it is in this age. Satan and his angels, they have some freedom of action, but not complete. They act only insofar as God and his sovereignty allows them. And there's a lesson in that for us. Because Satan and his fallen angels, well, they're angels. They were created with a power that far surpasses that of the greatest men. And yet power is not a passport for sin. Even these majestic angelic beings with all of their power. I mean, every time an angel confronts man, the first thing he has to say is, do not be afraid, because we see the greatness of their power and their glory and we're terrified. But even they, with their great power, cannot go beyond what God permits 
And God restrains them. God, God even uses their, their wickedness and their wicked plans in a way that will ultimately be good. Fighting Satan and his demons, seeking justice against them seems pointless. They're too strong for us. But God is infinitely stronger. He will judge even the mightiest beings in the creation. And then Peter moves on to the ancient world. And if he did not spare the ancient world, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, he's talking about the world in the age of Noah. The children of the godly families had begun to intermarry with the children of the ungodly families, and as a result, the sin of mankind grew exponentially. In fact, in fact Genesis 6 verse 5 tells us the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. That's how great, that's how ugly the sin of man had become that God even came to the point of saying, I shouldn't have even made him. And so God resolved to judge mankind, all of them. He determined to send a flood upon the world. Forty days of torrential rain from above. The, the fountains of the great deep from below. So that in the end, even the highest mountains of that age were submerged underwater. Every single being that drew breath dying with the minuscule exception of one man's family and the animals that he could fit in a big boat. Now there's a lesson in that, my friends. We don't know precisely how populous the earth was at that time. However, good scholars have indicated that it was at the very least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. It was not a small group. And yet that did not stop God from judging them. There can be great pressure to go along with the crowd because they are so many right? You feel lonely. You feel isolated. You feel powerfully pressured to go along with the crowd. They taunt you for daring to stand alone. They sow doubt. How can you be right when everybody else is wrong? How, how could that be? Isn't it more likely that you're the one who's wrong, that you're the one who understands it wrongly? But God wants you to remember that it is not at all unheard of for very few to be following the right path while the vast majority follow the path of destruction. And meanwhile, we must remember that the vastness of the multitude won't save them. If they have set themselves against God, if they have resolved to reject Him, then whether just a few or an immense horde, God is able to bring judgment on them just as He did upon the entire world in the age of Noah. So follow God regardless of how many refuse. And even if it seems that the whole world has gone astray, well, if it seems that way, then pause to examine yourself. Make sure that you're following after the ways of God. And then if you are, stand firm, confident that God will judge the many who have rejected Him. And then we come to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Verse 6, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Recognize, my friends, Sodom and Gomorrah were a mix of the Midwest and Vegas. What I mean by that, they were like the Midwest in their fruitfulness. That's why Lot was living there. Right now, today, it's an arid wasteland. The place where Sodom and Gomorrah were. But it wasn't. At that time, Abraham and Lot were dwelling together in Canaan and their flocks and herds had grown so large that the land could not support them both and their their herdsmen were fighting against each other. And so Abraham said, listen, the whole land is ahead of us. You pick one place to go and I'll go the other. Right? If you go right, I'll go left. If you go north, I'll go south. And Genesis 13 says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. He looked down to the area around Sodom and Gomorrah and it was lush. It was beautiful. It was was the perfect place for his flocks. That's why he went there. But they were also filled with wickedness in that place. They were like Vegas. I've been to Vegas exactly once for three hours which was approximately two hours and 59 minutes too long. Places absolutely filled with every sin and perversion and wickedness that you can think of, all of it advertised and promoted and sold at a discount rate. And that was Sodom. That was Gomorrah. They delighted in every perversion they could come up with. They celebrated their rebellion and their wickedness. And yet God saw their sin and he resolved to destroy them in judgment. He would bring to an utter and absolute end their wickedness. As an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And that's exactly what he did. Those cities were reduced to rubble. To flames and ash in a matter of hours. No one survived that judgment except for the three who were rescued by angels. Now please understand, my friends. Sodom and Gomorrah were not unlike our cities. I mentioned Vegas. But Vegas is not alone. It just happens to be the ones who specialize in it and advertise it. But everything you find in Vegas, you can find in New York, you can find in L.A., you can find in Chicago, and frankly, you can find in Grand Rapids, and Detroit, and Lansing, and Kalamazoo. It's all there. The variety might not be as wide. The prices might be a little higher, but it's there. And it's here. Our local schools... Our local community organizations are promoting the same kinds of depravity and sin and wickedness. Teaching our children and the children of our community that it's okay to do whatever feels right. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. If it comes natural, well, it must be what God wants for you. Even if it says otherwise in God's word, well, you have to trust your feelings because that's your truth. That's your ethic. And that's what they're teaching at our public schools and frankly at some of our Christian schools. Calvin College has been a bastion of that for two decades now. 
And our little towns of Middleville and Lowell and Caledonia, they're not exempt. We find the exact same wickedness there. Years ago, Billy Graham said, decades ago, Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah a big apology. And America hasn't gotten better since then. So we should expect judgment to come against those who embrace those kinds of sins. And we should refuse to fit in with them. Refuse to blend in with a society that delights in the ways of the devil. Refuse to celebrate a society that calls evil good and good evil. Refuse to be pressured into approving what God condemns. Because God does intend to judge those who rebel against him with a judgment eternal. Look at verse 9. If God has done these things, and clearly he has. Clearly he did send a flood upon the world. Clearly he did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And if he did, then we can be sure that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under, judgment, or under punishment until the day of judgment. Now many believe that since God isn't currently judging all of these perversions, then he won't ever judge any of these perversions. But that's a lie. God's waiting. He's biding his time. We're going to talk about that more in chapter 3, Lord willing. But he has reasons for waiting. But meanwhile, those who live their lives embracing this wickedness, well, they don't go to a pleasant place. They go to the absolute worst holding cell you could ever imagine, awaiting the day of judgment when their punishment will be solidified for all eternity. Absolutely horrendous to even think of. But the day of judgment is coming. Our God is righteous and just, and He cannot ignore the persistent, high-handed sins of men. He created us to serve and honor Him. So when we use His gifts to deface His image and to reject His commands and to dishonor His name, when we do those things, He can't turn a blind eye to it. He has to respond with justice. Verses, nine and, or verses 10 and 11 highlight those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and those who rebel, despising authority. Why highlight those? Well, those who, who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion, they're taking that body that you were given that was designed and created to be used to, to honor God. We were created, kids, young people, we were created as mirrors. We were created to reflect to the watching world the character of God. And when we use that, that body to embrace sins that God hates, that defile us, we're showing the world an absolute lie. We're using all of those gifts that he gave us to dishonor and hate him. And rebellion, I mean, we were made to honor God. We were made to follow Him wherever He leads. Rebellion stands directly opposed to that. And we don't rebel on our own. We don't rebel in a vacuum. We rebel and others follow our example. They, they take strength and encouragement from the fact that we're not struck dead on the spot. And so they follow us. So, my friends, be warned. The day of judgment is going to come. 
God will not overlook all of that wickedness. We heard in our assurance of pardon. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Those are just examples of the rebellion that arises naturally from the sinful heart and not one of them will enter the kingdom of God. And God will judge righteously, clearly, accurately. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No one will be exempt. No one will slip around the side. So if you continue to stand on your own, if you continue to embrace the sins of the flesh, if you continue to do whatever comes natural, whatever feels right, be warned. There's an expiration date on that behavior and then you will stand before God to answer for every last bit especially the ways that you have led others into those sins, that you have urged them to follow you, like the people of Sodom and of Gomorrah. But, but, but if you have turned to Christ, if you know well the struggle of rejecting those temptations to sin, if you have endured the hatred and scorn of the world, if you have often felt alone in serving Christ then, my friends, be comforted in the knowledge that the end of that rebellion and of that torture is coming soon. The end of that ancient struggle between the followers of God and the followers of Satan. The end of God's people feeling isolated and oppressed is coming very soon. When God will remove every single one of those who have rebelled against Him from the world. And meanwhile, know that God is reserving the wicked for His just judgment. However, God's discernment also looks to those who love and serve Him. Because everyone in this life commits sin, but not everyone lives for, identifies himself by those sins. Many strive against them. Seeking instead the righteousness of God in Christ. And so we see also how God rescues the righteous by His sovereign grace. We don't need to say much about it, but it's important what we do see here. Verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others. Notice that Noah was a herald of righteousness. A preacher, in other words. Noah's faith had feet. He didn't just say he trusted the Lord. He, he showed it. He showed it by obeying God and building that ark. Understand, kids, we, we see the little storybook version of the ark. It's a cute little boat, you know, with a giraffe sticking out the top. That wasn't it. This thing was massive. It was absolutely immense. It took years, decades to build but one board at a time, one cut at a time, Noah showed his faith by obeying. It wasn't raining when he started. There weren't any clouds in the sky. 
But he trusted the Lord. He believed the Lord and therefore he obeyed. And not only that, but he proclaimed. You don't build something like that without people asking questions. The neighbors wanted to know about that eyesore. The lumbermen, I mean, they were happy for the business, but they were wondering, why do you keep buying us out of all the lumber? The building committee, or the building and zoning board had no idea what to do with it. Right? Lots of people asked questions, and Noah answered. He was a herald of righteousness. He told them about the living God who made us and explained why we were created. He described to them the significance and the ugliness of their sin and how God in justice must judge that sin. He told them that that judgment soon would come and God would remove from the earth all of those who stood against them. He begged them to turn from their sin and to seek the living God. Now, according to modern standards, Noah was a very ineffective preacher. We don't know if he talked to 20 people or 2,000, but none of them turned to the Lord. But that doesn't mean that he was ineffective. Because every one of them heard the truth about God. Every one of them had the opportunity to turn. Every one of them will stand up on the last great day and say, I had no excuse. I heard Noah. Beloved, we have the same calling. We too have been told that a day of judgment is coming when the wicked will be destroyed. And we too are called to live in anticipation of that day, not by building a big boat, but rather by turning from our sin, by embracing holiness, by worshiping the Lord. Everything in our lives, young people hear this, everything in your life ought to bear the evidence that you're a Christian. Your education ought to be done differently because you're a servant of God who is the founder of all knowledge. Your family life ought to be different because together you are seeking to worship and to serve the Lord. The way you work ought to be different because you're not in it for the money and you're not in it for the personal satisfaction and you're not in it for the reputation. You're in it to glorify God who gave you every gift and opportunity. Your friendships, your hobbies... Everything ought to be different because you are in Christ. And if it is, they'll ask you why. The boss isn't even here. Why are you still working so hard? You just went through such a hard time. How are you and your wife still together? They're going to ask you those questions. And you, with Noah, are called to be a herald of righteousness. Tell them about the God who made them. Tell them why you, why you were made, why everyone was made, and what the effect of sin is on that. Tell them about the coming judgment and how horrific it's going to be, but tell them, too, about Christ and how He rescues us from the judgment. Tell them about Christ, who is our ark, who buoys us up over the judgment and gives us the hope of life eternal, the confidence of life eternal. They might not turn any more effectively than they did with Noah, but they might. And even if they don't, they will have heard the truth. They will stand up on that last great day and say, I had no excuse. I knew better. Because I heard from him, and I heard from her, and I heard... And they'll know better. 
Or again, consider Lot. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, condemning them for their sin. But Lot and his two daughters, God rescued. Because Lot, trusting in the coming Messiah, was righteous in God's sight. And Lot was tormented by the sin that surrounded him. Why didn't he move away? You ever wonder that? I wonder that. Why didn't he just move away? But we don't know his heart. We don't know his situation. For one reason or another, God caused him to remain in that sin city. And the way he remained is an example for us. Because we live in a place where we are surrounded. I just noted a few minutes ago the the Sodom-like character of our society. Are we to leave? Are we to flee? Are we to go build a compound out in Idaho? Might be tempting. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to be here in the midst of the darkness, shining forth a light that reflects Christ. We're here for their sake. We're here to show them Christ. And yet we're tormented by their sin. Such that we long for them to be freed. Such that we plead with them to escape the coming judgment. Such that we earnestly tell them about Jesus and his power to free them. And you know, if we do that, they're apt to hate us the way they hated Lot. But again, our sovereign God is able to rescue his people. And who knows whether he might also rescue a neighbor or two, a co-worker or three, a whole series of relative strangers to whom you have spoken. So let us call them to seek God with us, trusting the Lord to rescue his righteous ones. And you see, that's the thing. He can and he will. If God did this and if God did that and if God, he did all of that. And therefore we can know, verse 9, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows. God never scratches his head and says, how am I going to get him out of that? From the very beginning, he knew, he ordained how you would get through this particular trial, this particular hardship, this particular strife. And he will get you through it. Greater is he who is in us than those who oppose us. He will sustain us. He will strengthen us. He will deliver us right up unto the new heavens and the new earth. So trust that and live in the light of that. My friends, we are surrounded by those who openly embrace and celebrate sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery and swindling and hatred and all the rest. There are neighbors and our friends and our community leaders and left to ourselves, it would be us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God rescued you from your sin and from your sinful self. And now he has sent you to tell them that there's a better way. They may hate you. They may slander you. They may mock and abuse you, even kill you. Let them. Let them. 
Because the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So trust him. Confess him. Look to him and know never will he let you down. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that it is hard for us to stand firm when we know that so many others are going the opposite direction, when we feel so alone, when we feel isolated, remind us, Father, daily of the importance of standing in Christ. Remind us of your ability and desire to strengthen and keep us. Remind us that you will never let us go. And so cause us to stand firm in Christ by the strength of your spirit unto your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's stand and sing together from hymn number 387, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. This is a song that's familiar to you. The tune that they use is unfamiliar, so we're going to use the familiar tune from the Psalter hymnal. Um, We'll sing all the stanzas of 387.
Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness and the generosity that you have shown consistently to us. We pray that you would receive these, our tithes and our offerings, as our response to your faithfulness, demonstrating our faith that you will continue to provide and our gratitude for how richly and generously you have given. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is Psalm 18, Selection B. 18B, we'll sing stanza 1, and then the even-numbered stanzas, 2, 4, 6, 8.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.